When the ship capsized, it was all I could do to keep my head above the water. I couldn't call out for anyone. I couldn't grab anything. I just pushed upwards and spit out seawater as the waves broke over me. Again and again I braced for the wave, felt it pull me under, and I surfaced with a gasp, the deafening storm once again ringing in my ears. I don't know for how long this continued. Maybe a half hour? An hour? Hours? I can't say. But by the time the storm subsided and the waves became manageable, I was tired beyond measure. It was still nighttime, hopefully approaching the morning, but I saw no lights on the horizon. I called out for my friends and heard nothing in response. I scanned the moonlit sea as I floated and saw refuse from the yachts that seemed to have been carried by the current with me. And so, with what little remained of my strength, I slowly inched my way towards anything floating, not swimming, but merely treading water against the currents as things passed me. Counter to my luck thus far, I found one of the larger storage cases that had been on deck, and though I couldn't entirely support my weight, it was soundly sealed and I draped myself over it, resting my arms. I carried on this way for hours until morning, and when the sun did finally rise, I saw land in the distance and as I watched it get larger in the morning lights, I realized the current was carrying me towards it. Eventually, I heard the waves breaking on the shore. I heard the seagulls crying overhead, and the sounds kept the exhaustion at bay, giving me hope. By this point, I lamely held on to the container. The gentle slapping of the water against my face kept me awake. I soon felt myself being pulled back and forth, the waves getting fiercer, and with one last crash, the container was thrown from my grasp, and I felt the sand against my knees. I crawled up the shore, away from the hot sand, and rested against a tree at the edge of a woodline. My body felt like lead, and for a while I just lay there, watching the waves push debris ashore. I watched as the sun marked its passing, eating away at the shade until it lit up my face, and I shielded my eyes, and as I looked to the shade of the next closest tree... I saw a red flare go up like a firework in the distance, slightly over the tree line. Immediately, the exhaustion fled from my body, and my mind regained the clarity the night had sapped away. Rescue. Nearly half a day had passed, and it made sense there would be a search party when we didn't return after the storm last night. I strained my eyes on the flare, trying to get a distance on the burning red star as it hung there in the blue midday sky. It was far away, perhaps a mile or more and it didn't line up with the beach I was on. I had to head towards it, though my spirits were raised, and my body ached more than ever, and as I made to stand, white-hot pain shot up my right leg. I cried out and collapsed. Through gritted teeth and watering eyes, I looked at my swollen red and purple ankle. The numbness from cold and strain had worn off, and the pain flooded my body. I did not know if it was broken or how, but it ached me terribly and it was all I could do to crawl. I looked for some kind of branch or debris I could use as a crutch, and I eventually came across a short stick, uh, perhaps the size of a cane. With the thought of the flare still in my mind, I hobbled up to the beach towards it as best I could. It was soon no longer in the sky, but the last vestiges of smoke from where it had burned away still lingered. I assumed the beach would wrap around the island, if it was an island at all, and so I kept following the sand. I hobbled and winced and was forced to take several breaks, so great was the pain. Even while trying to keep the weight entirely on the stick, I could barely go one hundred meters without needing to stop. Onward I trekked, and I began calling out for help. 
The beach seemed endless, and if it curved, it was at such a slight angle that it was unnoticeable. Still, I walked and at times crawled onward, calling for help, eventually keeping my eyes on the water for boats or listening for the sound of an engine. When the sun began to set, pain and exhaustion were too much for me. I sat down on the beach, my throat sore from yelling, and my body aching from the swim and journey thus far. My mental state fared little better. The pain was still grating on me. The frustration of not finding the rescue party or whoever had fired the flare left me with a sense of helplessness. I watched the sun setting, and as I readied my lungs for one last shout for help, my voice caught in my throat. I wasn't alone on the beach anymore. The man was massive, maybe six and a half feet tall. His muscles ripped under his tanned skin as he leveled his spear at me. He must have approached me like a cat, so quiet were his movements to get within two meters of me. His hair was roughly cut, hanging about his face unevenly, and his beard was long and overgrown. Both were patchwork of brown and gray. Uh, he wore torn pieces of cloth like a belt, covering himself, the rest of him covered only by freckles and scars. Stiffly, he moved the spear nearer my throat. What is your name? He asked. The situation was so sudden and overwhelming. This man was obviously no part of a rescue party. Were there other people here? He spoke English just now, hadn't he? A hundred and more que a hundred and more questions pushed and shoved within my mind, all trying to be the first to ask, but I simply sat there, mouth agape, my eyes fixated on how sharp the spear point looked up close. Do you understand me? He asked me. He said each word slowly. I nodded quickly. What is your name? He empathized the question with his spear, and the look in his eyes genuinely frightened me. I gave him my name, and a rush of apologies and questions followed it. Where are we? I was shipwrecked. Did you fire the flare? I've been walk- He cut me off with a laugh. I could see the tension disappear from his body. His spear gave way. He smiled at me and attempted to help me stand, and when that failed, he took to examine my ankle while he answered my questions. We were on a long but narrow island. He had seen the flare, too, and had come to investigate when he heard me shouting. He lived here alone, and apparently had for some time. As for his name, he refused to give it, even after I pointed out that I have given him mine. It's not important that you know it, was all I got out of him. He finished examining my ankle and gazed at the setting sun. His lips moved silently, and I got the notion he was figuring the time. He turned back to me and said that he would be right back. As soon as he left me and went back into the woods, exhaustion washed over me. I leaned back in the sand to stretch and must have fallen asleep instantly. When I awoke, I had to blink several times to make sure my eyes were actually open. It was pitch black all around me. That the air was wet and clammy, and from the sound I made as I sat up, I got the notion I was indoors. I had been lying on a firm mat of some sort, and as I felt around, my hands could only find smooth, uneven stone. I could barely see the high, uneven ceiling and sloped walls. A nearby spire of rock seemed to reach almost all the way up, surrounded by some smaller, similar spires. I realized I was in a cave. I stretched a bit and felt a tightness on my injured leg. 
My hands traced the wooden splints that ran from my knee to my foot. I had lost my shoes in the water, but the man had removed my socks and applied some kind of ointment or cream. Just having touched it, I soon felt my fingertips go numb. I managed to stand, unable to feel the pain, and slowly moved along the cave wall, looking for light. I soon found I had been very near the cave entrance, just around a slight bend, and as I moved into the cave doorway, I let the morning sunlight wash over me. You slept for over a day, he said. I nearly leapt out of my skin. He had been just outside the cave, to the side, in a flattened dirt clearing. There he sat, not looking up at me, gutting a fish on a flat stone. I was worried. You must be thirsty. He stood and smiled at me, and gently he went to the edge of the clearing and, with a ladle, carefully filled a clay cup from a larger clay pot of water. Here, he said as he handed it to me. I took the cup from him and greedily drank the clean, crisp water, and as soon finished, he took it from me and ladled more water into it. We did this two more times before I was satisfied, and I thanked him. We'll eat soon. Do you like fish? We sat around a small fire outside the cave, away from the dirt clearing, and this time he asked me most of the questions. I told him of the trip of my friend's small yacht, of the storm, of how I had come to wash up on the island. I told him of my friends that had been on the boat with me, of James and his inheritance that had given rise to a sudden interest in boating. I told him of Ben and Lori, and how they, fresh from their honeymoon on a cruise ship, had indulged James in another immediate trip at sea. I spoke of some other random things of home and noted his interest in them. He asked me questions on things every so often, about technology especially, and when I showed him the ruined cell phone from my pocket, I watched his face as he held it and a thought occurred to me. Uh, how long have you been on this island? I asked. He raised his eyebrows at the question and handed the cell phone back. What year is it? Do you know? He asked. I, I told him. He simply nodded and began throwing more sticks on the fire. Eventually, he spoke. A while. I've been on this island a long while, he said. How long is a long while? I pressed him. He sighed and tilted his head up, eyes closed. I saw his lips move faintly as he counted again. Almost thirty years, he said, and began to get up. Thirty uh, years? Are you joking? I got up to follow him, and he walked back towards the clearing. You mean to tell me you've been here for nearly thirty years alone? Uh, no one has come for you? This can't be that far from civilization if I washed up here from a day trip, I said. He stopped and turned to me, allowing me to catch up to him. No, there were others with me, and I am here by choice. Others? So where are they now? I asked, following him again to the clearing. An emotion, a frustration, or something close to it, started to creep onto his face. They were killed, he said, by a monster. I didn't reply. It was the sort of answer you give to a child asking too many questions. I sat there by the edge of the clearing on a log as I watched him. He rinsed the rock he had used as a cutting board and washed his knife that was so thin it must have been sharpened thousands of times. 
I watched as he examined and replaced food in the ancient clay pots. All of these things in the routine so uniformly done with such ancient tools. Could he really have been here for thirty years? Eventually he finished his cleaning and turned to me as if to say something, but hesitated. He thought for another moment, and then went to pick up the huge spear he had left leaning by the cave entrance. Don't go anywhere. Just rest today, he said. I'm going to look for your friends. I nodded to him, and he started off down the small hill that led up to the cave. He paused and turned back to me after a moment. Keep the fire lit so it smokes. He pointed to the pile of wood and leaves by the dirt clearing. If your friends show up, make them stay here too. And he turned again to leave. But what if something else shows up? I called after him, jokingly, gesturing broadly to the island around us. Then go in the cave. Stay there, he said. The seriousness of his tone caught me off guard. And even from a distance, I could see the dark look on his face. I resolved to stay near the cave. When he eventually returned around sunset, he was alone. To my surprise, he had hauled back the container I had used as a flotation device. He had some other small things I assumed he scavenged from the beach. Bits of metal and a pane of glass I recognized as from one of the yacht windows, remarkably unbroken. A porcelain mug, uh, broken and what appeared to be a length of wire. These he put away in various jugs and jars. The life-saving container itself had filled with fruits and what appeared to be some kind of root vegetable. Some of these comprised our dinner, and afterwards he applied more of his numbing ointment to my leg and adjusted the splint a bit. Uh, when the sun was almost to the horizon, he ushered me into the cave and lit what seemed to be a grass wick in a small clay dish of oil or fat. It served as a surprisingly bright candle, and I saw that the inside of the cave, uh, despite being rather narrow, was actually also somewhat furnished. Uh, there were crude wooden panels on some of the more uneven parts of the floor and the walls, and eventually a makeshift door into another dark area. Wait here he said, and left me with the candle before going into the door and closing it behind him. After a moment, he returned with a large, solid wooden pillar. He closed the door and then took the candle from me as we headed back to the entrance of the cave. He then left the giant piece of wood with me and went outside, bringing in the pot of water. Afterwards, he slowly rolled an enormous stone in front of the cave entrance. It blended into the cave wall so well I hadn't noticed it until then. It was massive and flat. It must have been unimaginably heavy. Eventually, when the stone finally slid into the well-worn groove it must have etched over the course of decades, the man slid the large wooden pillar into a small groove in the ground, angling it so that it held the stone in place. With that, he unrolled a woven grass mat behind the stone, and wordlessly, with his spear at his side, he lay down to sleep. It wasn't until he turned to blow out the makeshift candle that he seemed to remember me. Ah, sleep where you did last time. Don't come near the door. And that was it. He blew out the candle, leaving me in the dark. That night I slept restlessly. 
I dreamed of drowning and woke up to the dull pain of my leg aching. I hobbled out of the cave and saw by the sun that the day was into mid-morning already. As I went out into the light and I saw my savior in the dirt clearing, spear in hand, his body tense. Viciously, the spear snapped at some unseen enemy in front of him. Over and under, around and above, the spear had glinted blindingly fast as it caught the sunlight. I stood in awe. The man stepped forward, pulling the spear back as he moved, and then thrust it forward like lightning. It seemed to cut the very air itself. His muscles strained as the heavy spear whirled, cutting the leg from the invisible enemy. Then around it came once more, blindingly fast, to sever the imaginary neck. He seems to relax suddenly. As he turns to begin his practice again, he saw me standing there. I went to him and exclaimed my amazement. He simply nodded humbly as he returns to his sparring, and he spoke to me of the dangers of the island, of snakes, spiders, and plants to avoid. He answered some of my questions, and then, as if on cue, a wild boar appeared squealing by the woodline. He sighed, and before I could say anything, the spear was out of his hand, whistling through the air. It struck the boar so hard that it was knocked backwards, dead instantly. It all happened so fast that when I turned to him, he answered my question before I asked it. They don't come here often, but they do dig up my vegetables. And he went to retrieve his weapon. I followed him over to the animal, and he swept the blood from the spear. The boar was larger than I had thought. I guess that's meat for quite a while, huh? I said. To my surprise, he looked at me with disgust. No, he replied, and hefted the huge boar up on his shoulder, holding it by the back legs. What? Why not? I asked. He paused at this and seemed to hesitate before answering. It's not. Not the right kind of meat. Not for eating and he began to carry the boar into the woods. You're serious? I called after him. Yes, he replied, pushing through the undergrowth, the boar trailing blood behind him. The rest of the day I passed alone. I pondered how easily the man had killed the boar and how good it might have tasted. My entire body still ached badly from the strain of the swim to the island and from sleeping on an uneven stone floor, and I barely walked at all. I investigated the contents of the jar and pots, finding mostly dried and smoked food, some odds and ends, bits of metal, and an assortment of noticeably worn-out tools. Eventually, the man returned before sundown. To my dismay, he was alone. He had gathered some more debris, a large collection of broken boards, which he spent that evening painstakingly pulling the nails out with a stone wedge. Uh, we talked little, and we ate fruits and dried fish for dinner before eventually retiring to the cave. Again he sealed it, and again he slept in front of it, bidding me sleep further in. Uh, once more I slept fitfully, imagining James's voice calling out to me, uh, louder and louder, until I woke up to it. Uh, I was really hearing it. He was calling for me. It was soft, but I could hear it. It was unmistakably James's voice. Over and over, he repeated my name, asking if I was there. 
I managed to stand and follow it towards the mouth of the cave, and I saw the man sitting on his sleeping mat, facing the stone door, a candle lit by his side, spear resting in his lap. James's voice resounded through the stone blockade in front of him. James! I shouted. The man jumped up, startled, and the voice outside stopped for a moment, then began calling my name even louder. I hobbled to the door quickly, but before reaching it, the man blocked me. That's my friend out there, I said, and moved to get past him. Again, he blocked me. That's not your friend, he said. What? Yes, it is. That's James. I told you. The man slapped his hand over my mouth. Again, I heard James calling for me. It's me. Are you okay? Can you hear me? I can't get in. Are you all right in there? He shouted through the stone. I struggled against the man's grasp, but he held me still. His grip was like steel, his face pressed close to mine. That is not your friend. The words escaped through his gritted teeth like a hiss. He had kept his voice low on purpose, so James couldn't hear us. That was drawn here by the death of the boar. It's why we stay in here every night. I don't care what it says. Do not speak to it. I pushed away from him and he let me go. I caught my breath and looked at him. I saw his dark face, illuminated by the flickering of the candle. He was serious. For a moment I hesitated, and we both listened as James continued to shout for me. It was unmistakable. that The familiar tone, the slightest hint of his accent, there could be no doubt. I glared at the man and I shouted, James, I'm here! As soon as the words left my mouth, the man was upon me again. A sharp pain went up my leg as he forced me against the cave wall, hand again clapped over my mouth. This time I could see panic in his eyes. He didn't say anything, simply held me there. And for several minutes we simply listened to the frantic voice of my friend as he shouted and begged for me to come out. I heard him pray that I was all right. Eventually, James stopped shouting, and the man released his grip on me, with the fear still playing on his face. Then came the pounding. James was hammering on the door with something. The man's eyes grew wide, and again he hissed at me. Not a word. And he went from me to grab his spear. The panic and fear I saw in the man bled into my own feelings. I doubted James could get through the massive stone door, even with proper tools, and a large part of me was relieved he was safe. I watched the man hold his spear at the ready, scanning the stone for any signs of movement, his eyes wild, sweat glistening in the candlelight. I was the one in danger. The man genuinely believed James was something dangerous. He refused to listen to me and I was essentially trapped in that narrow cave with what I was recognizing was an insane person. I resisted the urge to call out for James again, and the hammering and scraping eventually died away. Still, the man stood there, spear held at the ready, eyes watching the stone. I decided not to do anything to upset him, and so we waited in silence for hours. Eventually, I approached him, endeavoring to speak quietly about what he plans to do. When I reached him, his lips were moving faintly as he scanned the stone door. He was counting. Soon he turned to me, and I could tell he had calmed down. He said nothing, but bent down and picked up the nearly burnt-out candle and handed it to me. 
Silently, he removed the large wooden beam that blocked the door, and slowly he moved the massive rock along its worn groove until it rested against the wall next to the entrance. The sunlight spilled in as he did so. We stepped out into the morning. There were no noticeable footprints that I could see outside the door, at least none I could discern from our own two barefooted tracks, but still the man tried to follow some trace he must have seen. He left immediately, setting off into the woods, eyes scanning quickly for clues from the ground to the branches just overhead. I myself ate a breakfast of fruits and resolved to stay in the camp for the day. If James had made it here at night, I was pretty sure he could find the place again by daylight. I managed to get a fire going again and heaped the large jungle leaves onto it to produce smoke. I also scanned the sky for any other smoke from James's campfire, and the day passed in this manner. In the afternoon, the man returned alone again. He was noticeably tired, and he ignored me, going instead straight to the water jug we had left in the cave, drinking deeply from the ladle. Eventually, he went and procured dried fish for us, and sat with me at the fire. We ate in silence for a while, but eventually I had to speak. My friend is alive. He's on the island, I said. The man looked at me. I could sense his uneasiness. I could not find him, he said. But he found us, I said. In the night, he replied. He could have seen our fire, and we're on a hill. You leave all your things outside, it's possible. Again, I saw the unease on him, and he seemed to hesitate a moment before simply answering, No. Then who was it? I asked. He shook his head, but didn't hesitate this time. A monster. A demon. Something. Not your friend. Are you insane? You heard him yourself. I nearly shouted it, but he didn't turn to face me. He simply watched the dying fire while he ate. Eventually, he spoke. I will protect you. And I felt a chill run up my spine. We spoke no more, and that night I stayed close to the door, too, and waited. But James didn't return. For a week, things continued with no change. The man and I barely spoke, and I stayed wary of him at all times. He practiced with his spear every morning, caught fish to eat, or smoked some to preserve, and vanished for most of the day, sometimes returning early with fruits or to work in his garden. It became clear to me that James had either been rescued or was unable to come back to the cave. If I was to find him, or anyone, I would have to start venturing out. The next day I told the man I was going to come with him. I thought he would outright reject the idea, but instead he came over and examined me. He told me I looked healthier and could follow him to the beach so long as my leg was alright. I assured him it would be fine. It was not fine. Days ago, I had stopped using the numbing cream the man had given me, and while my ankle seemed to be getting better, I realized I had been wrong. I followed the man on the painfully long walk to the beach, my teeth gritted the entire way against the pain. Uh, when we arrived, I had no strength to search for James or anyone else. I simply sat and buried my ankle in the hot sand, glad for a different, more soothing type of pain. The man himself went into the water with his spear, wading out past the waves and then diving under the water. 
He seemed to stay under for minutes at a time, always coming up with a fish on his spear. After about the fourth one, he came back and stood next to me, putting the fish into the loosely woven net he had brought. Done already? I asked, hoping for more time to reset my aching leg. He nodded and gestured to the fish. After too many, the sharks come. Somehow, they always know. He hefted the nets over to his shoulder and made to head back. I got up to follow him. I could barely walk. If there had been any wonder as to whether my ankle was broken or not, it was now gone. It was swollen and an awful black and purple, so much so the skin had split and started bleeding. I couldn't put any weight on it and went from tree to tree to support myself, the man far ahead of me now. Eventually he must have reached camp and come back for me. As he no longer had the fish, he supported me the rest of the way. He said nothing as he bandaged my wounds. He sewed the largest splits on my leg tightly and with surprising skill. He affixed a new splint and boiled strips of cloth, eventually bandaging everything tightly. You need to heal, he said, and I could do nothing but agree. I stood no chance of finding James nor escaping my savior. If help was to be found, it would have to come to me. That night we went to bed early, and the man seemed uneasy. The feeling spread to me, and since I already couldn't sleep due to the pain of my leg, I was awake when he lit the candle with several sharp noises. The light was behind him, casting his large shadow on the wall away from me as I lay there, watching. He laid his spear across his lap as he sat, breathing deeply. At times he seemed to even be asleep, but always he sat straight up, his huge muscled back heaving as he watched the door. When he heard them call my name, he jumped up. It was Lori, her meek voice barely coming through from the other side of the rock. She must have been just outside. I could barely make out her words, but I heard her. She asked if I was there. Stone still, the man stood, watching and waiting his entire body tense. I could see the whites of his knuckles as he gripped the spear. Then I heard Ben's voice. He called my name several times. He said they were okay. They were here to help. My heart leapt to my throat, and the relief I felt drowned out the pain and fear I had felt until then. They were alive. They were all right. And as I began to sit up, ready to call back to them, I saw the man's eyes the fierce determination sparkling in them, the grim expression on his face. It suddenly struck me. He would kill them. I realized it as the joy and relief drained from me as quickly as it had appeared. He would have killed James, too. I didn't know what fascination he had with me and me alone, if there was some ulterior motive to him helping me. But whatever it was, it didn't extend to my friends. Uh, perhaps he really was simply insane. Could a man live alone on an island eating fish and fruit for thirty years and stay sane? The more I questioned it, the more I seemed to worry. Eventually, Ben's voice died away. I felt panic wash over me. I had to let them know I was here. I could find them in the day. I could escape tomorrow when the man left. But they had to know I was here tonight. I called out, Ben, I'm here! I shouted it as loudly as I could, my voice ringing and echoing off the narrow cave walls. The man turned to me, spear in hand, shock plain on his face. I heard Ben's voice call for me, 
and I got to my feet. Ben, get away! I'm safe! And the man rushed towards me. I placed my hands in front of my face to ward him off, and just before he reached me, the banging started. It was louder than before. It sounded like they were banging at the door with tools again. The man regarded the door with a worried expression, as if trying to decide between myself and the door. Eventually, he moved away from me, faced the door, and readied his spear. The banging was getting louder. It was echoing in the cavern. If they broke through, he would kill them for sure. My mind raced, and I remembered the crude wooden door at the back of the cave. There might be another way out. I picked up the candle on the ground between us and moved as quickly as I could along the wall, away from the door, away from the man. He saw me as I rounded the bend in the cave, and I heard him shout something, but it was drowned out by the banging. I fumbled to open the door, but it was held fast somehow. I pulled at the old wood around the crude door frame and opened it from inside, closing it again behind me. Here, the entire wall, ceiling, and floor were crudely paneled. Roughly hewed logs and boards made the room feel like I was actually indoors. A roughly made bed, stuffed and covered in some sort of canvas, sat to one side. A large, intact wooden crate sat at the end of it, and as I shined the candle around the room, I saw other small details and crude furnishings. A half-built chair, an actual stool, missing a leg but crudely repaired, Another long box on which sat a crackled hand mirror and rusted scissors. It felt so strange in that moment, to catch a glimpse of such humanity in that savage man I had come to know. Here was a life long gone, pieced back together with driftwood and twine, thirty years in the making. Suddenly, something made my ears perk up. The absence of sound. The banging had stopped. Again, I looked at the room for another exit, and there in the back... I found it. A hole where the boards didn't quite meet. The place was roughly patched over, like it had been closed and opened several times. I pressed the boards aside and continued on. The cavern seemed to go on forever. At parts I had to squeeze myself to get by, but on and on it went. Just one straight line. I didn't know how much time passed. I had to rest often, and I could feel my swollen ankle pulling at the fresh stitches, at the splint itself straining against the swell. I walked slowly, minding the candle as I went, and eventually the cavern widened and ended. There was no exit. I despaired. Again, I examined the walls and ceiling for any way out, any sign of a draft or light, and as I paced the room several times, I stepped on something. It rolled under my foot with a hollow sound, and I fell. It had been a bone. I scanned the ground with the candle, illuminating bones in small piles, neatly stacked around the edge of the room. My heart pounded in my ears, and the feeling of dread slowly crept over my body as I noted the human skulls atop the piles. Some were old, the bones worn and cracked, while others seemed newer, dull, white, with flecks of red and grey still stuck to them. Still, I looked closer, careful not to touch them. They all had a rough quality to them, as if they had been ground down, and for a brief moment, a memory of my dog flashed across my mind, and my stomach turned. The bones had been chewed on. I stood shakily, barely able to take in what I was seeing, and I backed away from the piles. I didn't want to count them. I didn't want to see them. And as I turned to leave the way I came, the candle illuminated the man, spear in hand, standing silently in my way. I'm sorry, 
I didn't want you to see this, he said solemnly. My heart raced, and I felt myself backing away from him. He took a single step towards me, and I threw the candle. Instead of being burned or caught off guard, he instead deftly swatted it away, but I was already running, moving faster than I had since I washed up on the island. I slid past him into the narrow passage just out of his reach. Immediately, I pressed onwards, moving as quickly as I could, always hearing him behind me. On and on I went, the narrow squeezes being the only time I could gain any distance on him. By the time I reached the room and barreled to the door, I was exhausted. I called for Ben, for Lori, for James, but there was no answer, no banging. My foot was slick with blood where the stitches had torn, and the splint was gone. Still, I ignored the pain, and when I made my way to the door, I placed my hands on the wooden beam. I heard the man come out of the room further back. I heaved the wooden beam out of place with all my might, just barely lifting it and dropping it behind me. Stop, he said, as I reached for the edge of the massive stone door. I'm going to my friends. I'm leaving. I shouted the words at him as he moved towards me, my hands firmly on the stone. Please, I will find your friends in the morning. Stop this. He made to grab me, and I slapped his hands away. Realization hit me. The grave look in his eyes pierced me. You will, won't you? You will find them. You found James. Oh, God. You did, didn't you? My mind went to the bones in the back of the cave. Pain, exhaustion, fear, all replaced with anger. It's you, I shouted as I pulled the stone with all my might. You're the monster. The stone cracked. I felt it come towards me in my hands. Split in two, the massive rock fell towards me. Then I shifted my weight, trying to press myself against the wall to avoid being crushed. The man, whether to save me or grab me, ended up in my place as the huge piece of stone came down. For a moment, it looked as though he might actually hold it up, but it cracked again, splitting at the groove where it set into the floor, and suddenly it collapsed on him, crushing him. Sunlight filled the cave, and I stepped outside in shock. The cave door had been horribly marked and scraped by my friends, and it was no wonder it had cracked. If I had been any later, or waited one more night, it's likely they would have broken through the door to meet a spear point. I looked for any trace of the man crushed under the door, but only saw a small drop of blood as it traced a groove in the cave floor. I shivered, and just as I went to walk away, the huge piece of stone began to move. I stood still, watching. The man was alive, lifting his way out from under what must have been a ton of solid rock. I heard him grunting, straining with effort as I stepped back as the stone rolled off of him. He stood, breathing heavily, and came towards me. Clumsily, I backed down the hill, and slowly he came towards me. The broken wooden half of his spear clutched in his hand. It was badly blunted on both ends, and I realized it saved him from being completely crushed. Still, his other arm was severely broken, his ribs on the same side seemingly crushed, making him look oddly uneven. His breathing was ragged and strained, his blood began to drip from his mouth as I tried to talk. Whatever he said, I didn't hear it. I moved back farther away from him, and I heard him exert himself, blood spattering his lips as he croaked. Stop! You killed my friends, I said. 
I suppose he's the right kind of meat, eh? I spat the words at him, no longer afraid. He stepped towards me, but I stood my ground. I remembered how James had found me, had tried to save me, had asked if I was okay. I was furious. They are dead, he croaked again. But I did not kill them. Can't survive the night, he gasped. I will protect you. You didn't kill those people? You, the man with the spear, the only person still alive on this island. My anger had reached a boiling point. The man looked pained, straining to speak. They were my friends, my family, people like you, he said. The blood bubbled as he talked and spilled over his lips again. He dropped his broken spear. But I saw the fire in his eyes then, and for a moment, he was again the imposing giant man he had always been. I saw it kill them. Saw it eat them. A monster. This was its lair. He lamely gestured back to the cave with his good arm and paused to catch his breath. It comes for you. I will kill it this time. He fell to his knees, gasping. The pain racked him. Something clicked in my mind, and I watched him hutched on the ground there. He knew the truth, but the fervor with which he spoke, and the fire in his eyes, he was fighting. The shrine-like room at the end of the cave, the bones, the desire to protect me. It's guilt. I said it without meaning to. You know you're a monster. You're fighting your urges. Jesus Christ, you really ate them. The shock made me lightheaded. What happened to James? He said nothing, not looking at me, and I thundered the question at him again, as loud as I could. He simply shook his head, unable to speak, his breathing coming in ragged gasps. I felt numb with shock. I backed away from the man and ran, unthinking, as fast as my leg would allow me. All day I shouted for James, for Ben... For Lori, I trudged through the hot sand along the beach, trailing blood, shouting until my throat hurt, on and on, just like on that first day weeks ago. I walked until the sun began to set, and this time, as I sat down in the sand, tired from two days without sleep and a broken ankle, I heard a boat engine. They were coming towards me. I tried to stand, but I couldn't. By the time they got me onto a stretcher, it was all I could do to confirm my name. They told me I had lost a lot of blood, and the tiredness and weights of everything began to take hold of me. I told them to find my friends, to find Ben and Lori, and someone told me that they were safe, and with that sudden feeling of relief, I passed out. When I woke in the hospital, I groaned, and panic took hold of me for the briefest of moments. From somewhere close by, I heard, You slept for over a day. It was James's voice. He came to the bedside and helped me sit up slowly. Tears formed in my eyes as I saw Lori and Ben get up from the nearby table and come to me. I, I thought you were dead, I said shakily. Us? <laughs> You've been missing for nearly two weeks, James said. I laughed, the first real laugh I'd had since before the storm. The relief welled up inside of me. I told them everything that had happened from the moment I washed up and saw the flare until I escaped. 
I apologized for not being able to help them, explaining how the cannibal had trapped me, how my leg had been broken. Ben noted the cast on my leg, and over and over I expressed how glad I was that they had made it out together. They were solemn, taking in the details of my awful story, sharing worried looks with each other, and so I left out the more unsettling details of the cave. So you heard us, you said? Lori asked. I did. I tried to shout to you, to tell you I was all right, but... I trailed off, remembering the awful man poised on the other side of the rock, ready to strike. And me, then you said you heard me too, James asked, and I told him how I thought he had been killed, tears once more welling up in my eyes. They comforted me, and Lori, looking concerned, took my hand in hers. You've been through a lot, she said. We'll go let the doctor know you're up. She and Ben gave me a smile and left the room, and James moved to join them, but hesitated in the doorway. You're okay, aren't you? He asked the question strangely, but I smiled and nodded. I am now, I said. Look, I... Uh, when we fired up that flare, the three of us, I mean, uh, together, we were rescued. Someone came for us that morning, he said, worry in his eyes. What? I mean, the three of us, we never found you or a cave. We were only on that island for a few hours, 